The download is complete. Welcome to the AV Forums podcast, presented by Phil Hinton. And welcome to December's Home Cinema Podcast. Coming up this month, we talk to THX inventor and surround sound guru, Thomason Holman. There are many home cinema fans in the UK who will be familiar with the name Tomlinson Holman, a name which will be uh, always associated with George Lucas's THX sound system. But what other achievements has Tom made in the industry since the foundation of the cinema sound system now used in thousands of theatres around the world? Well, it's with great pleasure that I say hello and welcome to Mr. Tomlinson Holman. Hello, Tom. Hello, guys. Thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. And also here is our regular panellist and technical editor, Neil Davidson. Hi, Neil. Hi, Phil. Hi, Tom. Hello there. Now, Tom, uh, I must thank you for joining us here on on the AV Forums podcast. And although our listeners uh, will be aware of the high points in your career, uh, and obviously with your name being associated with THX, they maybe want to know how it is that you started out in the business on such a, a very successful career. So you can, can you tell us who you are very quickly and, and how your career has progressed? Well, I've actually had about four careers. Uh, the first one was recording, editing, and mixing for films, very simply, mostly in a university environment, but a few outside of that. But I left film sound in the early 70s because the technical quality was so poor. And I went to work for Henry Close in consumer electronics at Advent Corporation. Henry had uh, developed the first acoustic suspension loudspeaker, the first home uh, theater projector, and so forth. So he, he became my mentor. And I, while I was only with Advent for four years, it was really uh, very, very critical. I left there when he did and started a company making preamps and power amps. And then uh, just a few years into that, while it was successful, uh, Lucasfilm called. And they wanted someone who was familiar with both sides of my career, the film sound side and the heavy-duty engineering side. So that was an opportunity not to be missed. (laughs) And I went there in 1980. I worked uh, full-time there in developing things uh, like THX, but also Skywalker Ranch and many other things that are invisible today, uh, full-time for seven years. And then I began teaching at uh, the University of Southern California and continuing to consult with Lucasfilm for another eight years while I was uh, commuting between Northern and Southern California. So that was kind of a bit of a grind. So I started uh, full-time teaching. Uh, Well, that was full-time teaching. I uh, uh, really became Los Angeles-based then about 1995. Uh, a few years went by. I wrote some books. I did some consulting. And colleagues of mine in the engineering school came to me and said, uh, Tom, we need to uh, get people tenure, and we need to get these young students PhDs. Please give us a really hard problem in audio that uh, we can set out to solve that nobody's done. And I immediately answered uh, auto-EQ. That's the clear thing. I had spent hundreds of hours tuning theaters and then home theaters uh, because that's sort of the last ingredient. And if that process could be automated and made simpler, uh, then thousands of people could do it and I could work myself out of a job. 
and that's what became Odyssey Laboratories. Tom, you mentioned Lucasfilm gave you a call. Is that where the whole THX thing came about, or uh, was it more more long-winded than that? And and what was the desired result uh, when you went there? Were you given a, a, a set of problems to solve? Well, not directly. Uh, my first interview with uh, George Lucas was one of, you know, he wanted to improve uh, the quality of the experience. Uh, that was his uh, objective. He did not identify the theater loudspeaker system as being important to that. He just knew overall he wanted, you know, Star Wars had really changed the face of the industry with Ben Burtt's artistic work, uh, followed a couple of years later by Apocalypse Now. The big sound picture had arrived, and he wanted to make sure the technical side was up to snuff. So I got about a year to look at the entire process from what was recorded on the set, most of them in England, by the way, uh, to uh, what you heard in the final cinema. And I found very uneven quality in that set of equipment. Uh, Microphones were fine the way they were. Nagra recorders just needed tuning up. Consoles needed to be replaced. And when it came to the film theater sound system, the venerable voice of the theater in the U.S. was like 85% of the market but also was about 35 years on and had not used all the findings of Peel and Small, of people who had also developed better, not just uh, better theories, but better actual devices, uh, people from JBL, Electrovoice, and so forth. So I identified uh, that the theater sound system as being a problem uh, Dolby having raised the quality of the sound recorded on the film and its recovery off the film, but then played back over a 35-year-old sound system was not a good situation. So I was able to sort of pick and choose from the catalog of developments that people had made over many years, uh, especially Teal and Small, for instance, and to uh, add some of my own uh, things to that and basically extend the frequency range by an octave in the bass and an octave in the treble, cover the audience more uniformly with lower distortion, sound energy, uh, have better localization and envelopment, and so forth. And, you know, you'd think uh, that's a big, important thing to do. It is, but largely it was a consolidation of everything that happened in the world between 1947 and 1980, um, and yet, of course, and I used uh, the Linkwitz Riley crossover style method, for example, and a time delay. It was the first time, while by amplification was well known, it had never been applied to cinemas. So a lot of it is the use of known existing technologies in the world uh, consolidated. And most importantly, perhaps, THX is about uh, not simply putting equipment in but rather putting equipment into a pre-qualified space, qualified for its background noise level, its reverberation time, its freedom from crosstalk from adjacent auditoriums and so forth. Uh, So that meant that it turned out to be a much smaller program in the end than, say, selling uh, equipment for the A-chain, which Dolby and Sony and DTS all did. And they have upwards of 50,000 theaters and... Uh, THX peaked out around 3,000 theaters. It's a much harder proposition to do because you had to send people out, you had to measure reverb time and background noise and so forth. Now, obviously, we're talking about auditorium sound there, theatre sound, but obviously uh, the the first link in the chain must be the dubbing theatre and the mixing theatre. So what input did you have there? 
Oh, that's a very interesting story, actually, because within about a week of being hired, I was up against uh, the architect for the first space that uh, they were to do, and this architect was well-respected by people. But he, he was an MIT graduate, and he followed uh, Leo Brannock uh, slavishly. And the problem with uh, Leo's book, which was the first real book on acoustics, uh, fine and good, except that what he did was he codified the existing practice in 1952. And that was not well informed by even by stereo installations. You know, those were practically all mono vaudeville theater conversions. Uh, so uh, to be stuck at that level, I thought was uh, crazy. And I had a big arm wrestle with the uh, architect over the refurb time and uh, managed to get it uh, down rather lower. We talked uh, all, nearly all night, one night on the phone about the reverberation time for this space. And he wanted it from Brannock's book and from existing practice to be around a second, and I wanted it to be around half a second. And we finally agreed on uh, seven-tenths of a second or something, but he uh, he actually forgot some of the uh, absorptive materials in the room. <laughs> it wound up at half a second. And when people heard this room of this particular volume with its ability to localize and understand speech and noise, and so forth as an improvement, then the the, the uh, thing was proven. Now, I just did that kind of seat of the pants, and I expected someday to find deep intellectual roots for this. And I finally found an article uh, published uh, by Canadians that said that uh, they had built a screening room and they had got this reverb time and it was all correct, and they had a footnote to the BBC. And I thought, oh, here we go. Now we've got some deep intellectual roots. I'll go look a root out this BBC paper. And I did, and it turned out to be a paper about a re, uh, about shooting stages. It wasn't about screening rooms at all. <laughs> Completely misused. So there go my deep intellectual roots. So did you have to make uh, any major changes, Tom, to the setup that they had at Lucasfilm? I understand you had some input to Skywalker Sound. Oh, well, uh, yes. I mean, uh, the room I'm speaking of, I was just speaking of, was the prototype for the rooms at the ranch, and I set all the standards and requirements on what was built at the ranch, both in the main house and most especially in the technical building. That technical building at Skywalker is about three years of 60-hour weeks, uh, mine and the architects. And so setting all the standards for everything, uh, projection and picture picture quality, sound quality, uh, everything under the sun was uh, my job as I eventually became corporate technical director of the company. Now, you were awarded uh, an Academy Award for your efforts with the THX system. Did you expect your initial work and the initial ideas and so on to be so successful? Um, you know, I was really, I didn't even know at the time it was done that it would work outside of Lucasfilm. The people from Hollywood told me, Tom, you're new to this business. We know what we're doing. What you should do is just build your screening rooms as though they were average cinemas so that you could hear what it was going to sound like in the average cinema with its background noise level and reverberation and so forth. And I thought, that's all well and good, but you're not even hearing everything you're putting on the soundtrack, a full frequency range, for instance. I took home a Star Wars master and played it on a good home system, and I heard cuts in the rumbles that they probably never heard on the dub stage because I had an extra octave of bass that they weren't hearing. So what we did was we built this THX system, uh, and people know it in the theater, 
But what we also built in the dub stage was a lot of electronic degrades. So we could punch a bunch of buttons. We had a whole series of buttons to add background noise, to add the frequency response of a standard A4, and so forth. Uh, there were uh, there ad clipping, uh, just as an ordinary, uh, typical theater with a 35-watt power amp and an A4 behind the screen. You know, I went and measured those, and I made a clipper that worked just like that. So I had all these degrade buttons that they could use uh, to make it sound like the average cinema, yet when you punched them all out, you got this wide frequency range and so forth. It really was tours, then, of people coming to look at Lucasfilm that stimulated Lucasfilm into wanting to put it into theaters. And that was uh, General Cinema was the first one. We did four theaters in Time for Jedi. And I never worked so hard in my life because we were improving the 70-millimeter process, we were doing post-production on the film, and we were installing the first four THX theaters. It was quite dense time. Tom, obviously there's been changes over the years with the THX certification uh, program. Have you had any involvement with the new developments with obviously digital sound and so on? Well, um, up through 1995, I did uh, have a lot. Uh, in 1987, there was a meeting of the SMPTE in which uh, that's the, the American Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, and it was a subcommittee on digital sound on film. It was clear by 87 that uh, the next step was to put the bits on the film and extract them and do a digital system. In the end, over a long period of time, that proved to kill 70-millimeter film, which is rather too bad, but it did do it, uh, because the sound quality was one of the principal reasons for 70-millimeter. At any rate, in 1987, uh, then, there was a trade-off, because the three items that cause bit rate on a medium are the frequency range, the dynamic range, and the number of channels. And the fourth thing that you're up against is how many bits can I get on this piece of film and recover them without dropouts and clicks and so forth. So we determined that the frequency range should be uh, the full audible frequency range, but to use higher sample rates, as we've seen today, made little sense in the cinema because you were working in large spaces where the air absorption of ultrasonic sound is so great that using 98, uh, 96 kilohertz sampling or 192 kilohertz sampling just didn't make any sense. So it became 48 kilohertz sampling. The dynamic range is really caused by the vote of the audience. If it's too loud, people get up and tell the management it's too loud. So having 24-bit audio, for instance, uh, if you set the noise floor of 24-bit audio down to just inaudible, it will play at a peak sound pressure level of about 140 dB. Well, if any sound system could do that, it would wreck people's hearing uh, because the U.S. Army doesn't allow its recruits to be exposed to anything more than 140 dB, and they're not interested in the long-term hearing health of their recruits. They're interested in the fact they can hear their orders tomorrow. So uh, the audience, the upper limit on the audience is about where we're at with 105 dB per channel times 5.1 channels. And uh, so the real interest then becomes the number of channels. The fewer you have, the more reliable the system is, and the more you have, the better involvement and immersion you have. So the vote was going around the room. We should have two channels, LTRT, like Adobe ProLogic or Surround Encoded Track. We should have four channels, LCRS. It was good enough for Empire Strikes Back. Why isn't it good enough now? 
uh, we should have eight channels because uh, five across the screen and is the Todd AO standard, et cetera, et cetera. And I put my hand up and said, 5.1. And everybody said, 5.1? What is he talking about? 0.1 of a channel. And I explained uh, what this was, that it meant an extra LFE channel because you need more headroom at low frequencies to sound equally as loud as the mid-range because of human hearing. Uh, and uh, actually that this was uh, vast marketing rounding because the real number uh, in terms of channels is 5.005 because it's only 0.005 of a channel to represent the bandwidth of the LFE channel. Uh, but that 5.1 would do for marketing rounding. And that name stuck. I wish I had uh, trademarked it that day, but uh, then it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Uh, and uh, that became the standard. Um, obviously, it came out on film in 92. It came out on DVD in 97. And uh, now it's ubiquitous. Tom, do you think there's still a need or, or a call for systems and certification like THX, whether in the home or commercial theatres? Or do you think that people... Um, are that used to, to high-grade audio now that, that it should just be part of the course that when a theatre is designed or a home theatre is designed, that the very best equipment goes in there? Well, it is true that um, what we set out to do in THX was to influence the industry. Uh, George received uh, the Irving Thalberg Award from the Academy for that, and he stood in front of a giant THX logo uh, when that occurred. And it was to influence the industry and to make it a better platform for everybody. The fact that what we did in THX, the patents have now expired, by the way. It's been long enough. You, you live long enough and your patents run out, you know. And uh, yet uh, those techniques and methods are, are very widely used. They are respected in some places. Uh, people live up to them or they don't. Uh, the problem with the certification program became servicing those theaters, sending enough technicians out to look at thousands of theaters a year just proved in the end too uh, burdensome and it couldn't really be done the way, you know, we, we did do some things. Uh, for instance, THX is formed as a lease and this was uh, done because of other companies selling equipment into theaters and then finding them not very well used. So they were frustrated with how their equipment got used. So we said, well, at THX, we'll lease them so we can take back their McDonald's golden arches if they should happen to misbehave and put out bad French fries. Uh, and, uh, so that, and that has been invoked from time to time. I, uh, the program today, I honestly don't know uh, where it's at. I think there is a need uh, on one level, and that's on the uh, professional level, to know that the dubbing stages are quite standardized because this leads to the product being quite standardized, and that means that everybody down the chain can do a better job at technically reproducing it rather than having some kind of artistic input needed to reproduce the sound because it's variable from one source to another. So to the extent that Dolby has done this and THX has done this, to standardize uh, dubbing stages is a very good thing. It's probably all you can do in today's world. Now, Tom, just moving on to home theatre, and one of the questions that always seems to pop up on our forum site is in regards to uh, dipole, bipole, tripole rear speakers, uh, and sure. their worth is in, within the home system over monopole speakers. Now, what would your recommendations be for someone who is wanting to create the perfect sound at home? 
Well, it does depend on the room acoustics of the home. In small rooms that are highly damped, as we use in small dub stages, we have to do, like everybody else, we have limited real estate at the university or in professional environments here in Hollywood. When they are small rooms and quite damped, then the dipole doesn't make sense. So we use arrays, like up to 16, uh, quite small loudspeakers to uh, uh, get a uniform sound field. However, in most people's homes with hard surfaces, uh, in most areas, then the dipole kind of shines because it gives you the more of the effect of a more uniformly spread uh, surround sound field. Now, you can, you can say that it doesn't localize, but in fact, that is its very strength because, after all, what is surround sound if you can localize it? If you can sit in the middle of a 5.1, quote, matched speaker array, unquote, as music industry would have us do, if you're permitted to turn your head a little bit, you say, oh, there's the speaker. And that means that's not, uh, in the case of a surround speaker, that means that's not surround sound. Uh, you know, just reproducing reverberation out of a direct radiator loudspeaker uh, means that you, you don't really get an enveloping sound field, and the dipoles will help better. In our 10.2 system, what we do is both. We have, we have several examples of that. In a theater, we use both a surround array and a point source surround, a la IMAX, uh, and give the producer the choice of do they want this particular effect to be spot localized, or do they want this to be a, a, a kind of uh, field of grass or something like that where you want a big big ambience uh, and you want it everywhere. And in the home, in a smaller room, uh, we use uh, direct radiators for elements that we want to pan smoothly. And with 10.2, we can do something like Shakespeare in the round, inside out, where the actors appear all around you. And we do uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, the last act in the forest at night. And we have Falstaff moving uh, around us. And he can move from speaker to speaker, for, uh, from channel to channel, uh, very smoothly and uniformly in a 10.2 system that you can't do in a 5.1 channel system no matter what kind of speakers you use, uh, whereas we can also do applause or ambience, and for the, those we use dipoles. So, uh, you know, for general purposes, in most uh, home-style listening rooms without special acoustic treatment and for movie sound, uh, the dipole is best, I think. Now, Tom, we're moving into the digital age with HD um, and HD sound from Dolby 2HD and um, DTS Master Audio. Uh, where do you see sound in the home going, and, and have you had a chance to listen to these new systems, and, and what's your thoughts? Well, I've been listening to those systems for years because I don't hear coded audio very much in post-production. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, the, uh, the idea of these new systems is they are just more transparent channels back to the dub stage where we've been for years. So that's all well and good. I think what people will learn as uh, time goes by is that uh, systems like Dolby Digital are very close on most signals. Yes, you can tell them apart on certain sounds some of the time by experts, uh, and so it's an advantage to have linear PCM systems, and we certainly do that in the cinema with digital cinema. 
but uh, you know the difference is not going to be night and day when things are well aligned and they are the same mixes. You know, the first time that uh, a real comparison was available between Dolby Digital and DTS uh, was on Waterworld, the DVDs. And uh, my friend uh, David Renata, the technical editor of uh, Sound and Vision, uh, gets those discs in and puts them on a spectrum analyzer. And he plays them back for several minutes, and he comes up and he finds there's a frequency response difference. And he calls me up and says, there's a frequency response difference. And I say, hold it right there. I know what it is. 100, 1K, and 10K are all the same. Whatever uh, shift there is at 2 kilohertz, there's an opposite shift at uh, 16 kilohertz. If it's down, then 16 will be up. He said, how do you know? How did you know? I said, that's two different dubbers. They were played back on two different analog systems. And that's the alignment of the analog systems. And that was the major difference in Waterworld between Dolby and DTS. <laughs> So it all came down to, to how that disc was mastered then? Yep, it uh, certainly did. Fascinating stuff. So talk, after leaving uh, the THX uh, system behind you and moving away from Lucasfilm, what else did you do? I understand you've written some books and so on. Uh, yes, I wrote three books for uh, Focal Press, uh, sound, sound for Film and Television, uh, Sound for Digital Video, and now just came out the second edition of Surround Sound Up and Running which is a professional book. Uh, there's not, uh, it isn't aimed at home theater uh, readers, really, but the first chapter might be interesting because it's a whole history. turns out that uh, Surround Sound had a deeper history than I understood even before this summer uh, because of uh, studying what happened in, you know, 1543 <laughs> in Venice and so forth. So that first chapter may be a, a bit interesting to people to see that... Uh, the idea of surround sound goes back a long, long ways. Tom, the main reason you're, you're talking to us today is the foundation of Odyssey Labs. Um, what role did you play in the development and foundation of the company? Well, I, as I uh, said earlier, I think one the most important was saying, nominating that auto EQ was the big topic to be addressed. And also what I knew at the time was that all the former solutions had failed. And the reason they had failed had to do with basic digital audio things like the way that the FFT represents the signals and so forth. These were very fundamental problems, and they had not been solved by anybody. And I was able not just to state do auto EQ, but that uh, all the former ones didn't work because of X, Y, Z, and A. And uh, so it took them some five years to uh, work on this system. And what we would do is uh, double-blind comparisons between my hand-tuning of a room and their auto-tuning of a room. And at first, it was easy to say which was which and tell them exactly what was wrong. I, I could easily beat them in the beginning of those five years. But by the end of those five years, uh, at times, it was 50-50. They were beating me some of the time. And uh, we can and we continue with this uh, over time, you know, in, studying it in different systems and different scale and so forth over time. Uh, so that uh, was my, my role was of uh, chief needler, I guess. <laughs> Here are all the problems you've got to solve before you really got something. And I, by, by the way, I have no capability of solving those at all. I'm not a, uh, you know, that was high order math, uh, physics stuff that took PhDs and got, actually got dissertations and got tenure and so forth. Uh, got a lot of publications in IEEE, uh, 
that's not me at all. But but what I knew was uh, where the problems lay. When you got to the the stage where you thought that the the students had had managed to crack all the uh, all the problems, did you see that developing into um, the Odyssey system uh, as a commercial uh, product to to put out to the market? Well, really, that was them more than it was me looking around for seed money and capital and starting a company and so forth. Uh, they invited me to advise, and I did, and eventually uh, uh, began working with them in all the time I have available outside the university, pretty much, except for, you know, I, do, I still do writing and consulting in studios and so forth, but my main consulting uh, is with Odyssey, or, and I, you know, I'm called chief scientist here. I, they, that was a weird, crazy idea. <laughs> I've never <laughs> thought of that idea. They said, well, you should be chief scientist. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, it's a sort of uh, inspirational. I, I hope to uh, one day uh, get to the level of the uh, 98-year-old Japanese gentleman who was the inventor of VHS, who came to an SMPTE meeting to uh, receive an award, and he had a title at JVC. He was over. He was well over 95. I think he was 98. Uh, and his title at JVC was Supreme Advisor. <laughs> I love that title. <laughs> that means I have no responsibilities. <laughs> That's good. I, I, I hope to achieve that title someday. <laughs> so, Tom, maybe you could explain to our listeners what it is that Odyssey offers them as home theater, home cinema enthusiasts. Well, actually, Dolby Stereo and its revolution uh, in the cinema that started in 1975 was based on three items. One was extending the frequency range through the use of compounding noise reduction. That's not obvious why, but uh, it's a long story. But basically uh, filling out the whole frequency range. The, the second was to recycle uh, what had been the quadraphonic era encoders and decoders to get two ch- uh, tracks on the medium to play back four channels, which is what became Dolby Pro Logic in the home and a similar decoder exists in the theater for 35-millimeter uh, prints. This all predates 5.1, of course. The third ingredient that people pretty much don't know is, was there from the outset was one-third octave equalization of the theaters. By equalizing theaters uh, and having sound systems that were similar in room acoustics that were similar, you could guarantee that what you heard on the dub stage was more or less what you heard in the cinema. It's not perfect, but everybody at least has the same target goals in mind. There's no issue as there is in home stereo reproduction of the goal. The goal, the goals, the frequency responses, the levels, all those things are very well understood in the cinema market. People may or may not approach them, but that's nonetheless, it, there is one set of goals. And that includes uh, equalization. Well, to make uh, the home better, right from the early days, we made things like the Rain THX44 uh, that I worked on with Dennis Bond from Rain and so forth. The problem was that there really wasn't equipment simple enough and inexpensive enough to go into theaters, uh, to go into home theaters and tune them. A few very high-end people could do it. But the test equipment was around $5,000, and we had gotten it down to that value from what it would have cost if you'd done it with B&K equipment would have been $50,000. And we built a, you know, we built the R2 spectrum analyzer at 
THX just so that you could measure background noise level reverb time and frequency response all very correctly uh, in a way, in a context that could go in one suitcase. Well, that just couldn't work in home theater. So it had to wait until a, uh, for widespread use for a really straightforward system that would use a microphone and measure uh, the room uh, and its effect at a number of locations. That's very important that it correctly weights the different uh, seats in the listening room and so forth uh, to deliver uh, the spectrum. Now, one of, one of the things that I'm really happy about just this fall is I've gotten two emails, one from a guy who has seven Oscars who bought an Onkyo receiver, took it home, hooked it up, followed the directions, and wrote me an email saying, uh, this, this stuff really works. Is this you? <laughs> and he knew me from years and years ago. And, you know, is this you? Yeah, that's what we've been doing. And, you know, that's really uh, very heartwarming. And I got a similar one from another uh, guy uh, from the uh, Cinema Audio Society who had the same experience, bought a receiver, took it home, hooked it up, and, gee, this room sounds better than it ever did. Uh, I guess you guys have had that experience. Yeah, we we recently reviewed the uh, the Odyssey Sound Equalizer standalone, and it simply blew us away with its accurate performance and and obviously the benefits that we saw um, with our system within the room. Uh, my room, my uh, review room, is not the most ideal uh, room. It's got high ceilings. It's uh, stone walled, um, so obviously it had lots of problems with the room. <laughs> Um, but once we we managed to, to find out the best places for the loudspeakers and the subwoofers and then added in the Odyssey, um, it simply blew us away. And what I'd really like to know is uh, what makes the Odyssey system so different to every other uh, equalization technology out there? Well, it has to do with the, that going back to those fundamentals of what I said from day one, that the an FFT, the way to get from the time domain digital audio samples into the frequency domain to do some processing is uh, by taking FFTs. And the problem with them is that they are uh, linear frequency-based. So they apply as many bands between 10 and 20 kilohertz as between 0 and 10 kilohertz. And that means you have all your resolution at high frequencies. Well, guess what? All your room problems are at low frequencies. So FFTs automatically limit uh, what you can do at low frequencies. Now, some people have built boxes in the past that have just thrown uh, DSP at this, so they'd have six or eight DSP chips to do this for two channels. And by uh, doing that, they could approach uh, some kind of frequency resolution at low frequencies. Uh, the problem is that it just was very, very impractical and ridiculously expensive. So what we did is, one of the things we did is something called frequency warping where what is done is to take the spectrum and sort of squish it, so to put more capability at low frequencies where you need it because of the room acoustics. So actually following the precise curves that occur at uh, the, the ripples and bumps at low frequencies and making it uniform on, say, bass guitar. Every, you know, uh, all the standards say you should use third octave equalization. But if you listen uh, to bass guitar notes, boom, 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 you find every note's reproduced with a different loudness. Well, that doesn't mean you need third octave equalization. You need at least twelfth octave equalization just by that example. Anybody can hear that. 
The third octave equalization is based on anechoic listening for people in live spaces. Uh, I'm sorry, in dead spaces, and it's anechoic. Well, sorry, there's a room involved, and that room has influences over each and every note, so we need much better resolution than third octave at low frequencies. Uh, so that's one of the things. Another is the way that the uh, average is taken. Now, I used to use, uh, with our, our two-spectrum analyzer from THX, we used the good standard B&K-style method RMS averaging. It turns out that that's not the best way to represent the response over the listening area. This uh, method called fuzzy clustering does represent the response better. So it, uh, it it's part of uh, fuzzy logic, which is newer than uh, their more old-fashioned uh, RM, true RMS averaging, which we, we were doing properly uh, in the standard classical way at THX, but these guys and their PhDs found a way to better combine their responses so that it represents the final response better for a given number of measurements. So those are two of the developments. There are others. Uh, in particular, though, fitting the curves uh, at high resolution is probably the most important. It's what also distinguishes uh, the various levels of uh, Odyssey because depending on how much DSP horsepower is available, that process can be done in finer and finer detail. Now, maybe I should bring in our technical editor, Neil. Uh, Neil, do you have any questions on Tom regarding the Odyssey system? Because you've had quite a bit of experience in the field in installing these systems. Well, yeah, uh, I work with these systems very, very regularly these days. Um, I think one of the things uh, that people will want to know is that there are some claims on the Odyssey website um, that there can be improvements in the time domain response as well as the frequency response. Uh, yes. using the device, and I would like to know how that's done electronically. Well, the uh, you know, the time and frequency are sort of left hand and right hand uh, of a twin, and so you can get from one to the other. Those, uh, what you hear are those frequency chirps. When you turn the thing on, it goes bloop, 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 but that is immediately turned into a time domain response, a spiky response showing the direct sound and the reflections in the room. When the nomination is done for putting together the different uh, curves from different spots in the room, that's done in the time domain. So they're sort of lined up uh, for the direct sound, and then uh, all those subsequent responses are shown. You know, a, a good, uh, it can be shown that, that when things are uh, minimum phase, uh, and this is in the well-controlled area of a loudspeaker acting as a piston, for instance, and many things in room acoustics are minimum phase, that if you fix the amplitude, you are also fixing the time domain. It is only what is called excess phase, which are places where loudspeakers are in breakup or rooms are in very complex conditions, that you uh, fail to correct both frequency and time at one and the same time. So that... Uh, by correcting it with fine detail, you are, in fact, correcting uh, the, uh, a large part of the time domain response. You can't correct the excess phase response, but that is, uh, you know, relatively less important, perhaps, in most rooms and most installations. I, I guess one of the other things as well, a little bit related to that, is I often see people, uh, when they're using the Odyssey microphones, 
placing them hard up against uh, a wall, for example, placing them on the back of the sofa, hard up against the wall. Now, I would expect some problems for that, um, comb filtering, etc., from being up against these surfaces. Uh, I would too. Are there any guidelines that you could suggest for our listeners um, and a yeah, good place I, to, I, I, to position? Yes, I've had a long fight with various people over this over time. Uh, certain <laughs> theater uh, cinema people wanted to measure the sound field about 10 feet in the air because the seats have an influence on the frequency response. And, of course, I say that because the seats have an influence on the frequency response, I'm talking about now rows of seats in the cinema, because they have that response, you need to put the microphone where your ear is. <laughs> and uh, uh, So I think those microphones, if they are up against the wall, if that's where you are doing the listening, then uh, that's probably all right, but you are putting it in with a lot of other uh, spatially average responses, so that probably comes out of the wash a little bit. But if it's just simply setting the microphone on the top cushion of a couch and not bothering to stick it on a small stand where your head goes, I think that's a mistake. It should go yeah. where your head goes. You know, yeah, we, we see that one all the time, all the time, that the, the little microphone is always on the back of the sofa. So well, please, listeners, don't do that. Uh, that's not too good. It's not as bad as what I have seen. Some of the instructions uh, for some of the other auto EQ systems, show the hockey pucks, puck style microphone, yep. show, it pl show it placed on the seat. <laughs> I'm not sure what you're equalizing for when you put it on the seat. <laughs> Excellent. Now, you mentioned the, the, the hockey puck microphone there, Tom, and, and obviously that's available with a lot of consumer um, products which have Odyssey in there, like uh, from Onkyo and Marantz and Denon. Um, there's also different Odyssey technologies. You've got two EQ, multi EQ, etc. Can you just explain the differences between those uh, different standards? Well, uh, I'll get the trademark names wrong, I'm afraid, but the, the basic idea is that as you go up in uh, price and DSP horsepower, you get ever greater uh, realization of curve fit. You get closer and closer uh, to the curves because, you know, I did talk about frequency warping and so forth. There are other tactics in there to get the po best possible curve fits, but clearly the more memory you have and the more uh, DSP you have, uh, the better you are able to fit those curves. And uh, memory, 2EQ uh, is a pretty simple system, uh, but meant to be a benefit in a uh, lower-end product that uh, at least has a microphone out there in the room and so forth. We also even do things where uh, there is no microphone. You know, we, t we tune um, radios and so forth. Uh, that we just we do in house. We try it in a number of rooms. Uh, we get the equalization uh, as universal as we can, and uh, you know it's certainly much better with that equalization than without it. Uh, and so there are some that are the lowest end stuff are, are fixed, and then the next end has a, f a few measurements, and uh, the top end has uh, the most measurements, the most. Uh, frequency resolution, and so forth. Now, there's a number of high-end receivers on the way in the next few months, um, and they will have the pro version of Odyssey on board, the 32-position uh, system. Will that offer the same performance as the standalone unit? You know, I honestly don't know. I think it's <laughs> very, very close, if not identical. Uh, it depends on uh, exactly how much DSP is available where, and that I don't, I don't know model by model what those differences are. 
I do know that one of the things that the uh, receivers can do that the standalone uh, can't do yet, because uh, the standalone does not have information about uh, level. You know, it doesn't know. Uh, it doesn't have a volume control or anything, so it's it's an equalizer. It's a standalone equalizer. Once uh, we're embedded in a system, then we can do something uh, called dynamic EQ, which is basically a paper I wrote in 1977 called Loudness Compensation, Use and Abuse. And it was about how loudness compensation controls of the time could never get it right because they had no a priori knowledge of the uh, sound pressure level of the program material when it was recorded, of the monitor level at the time of playback. I, I, I named about five problems that meant that loudness compensation would never work. And what I did at the time was made a bass control for the apt preamp that kind of hinged around correctly so you could kind of set it by ear in a fixed way. It really should be dynamic and so forth, but it had some advantage over doing nothing. Well, now 30 years later, we've got DVDs, and we know that on the dub stage, minus 20 dBFS is 85 dB sound pressure level in the dub stage. We know dialogue normalization is going to turn that down 4 dB. We know that with the microphone and calibration, what electrical level yields what sound pressure level in the room. So as it turns out, all of those objections I had in 1977 uh, could be made to go away. And we could build a system that was dynamic, that knew when the original was at 70 dB and when it was at 50 dB. It knew when the playback was at 60 dB or 40 dB. And it uh, can apply the right uh, compensation for uh, the what is called the Fletcher-Munson effect, even though they didn't make the best measurements of that effect. And we don't use those curves, but we use uh, much later developed ones. And in this way, you can play things at home, down 15 dB from the dub stage, down 25 dB from the dub stage, and still have the frequency balance uh, sound correct. And that's uh, dynamic EQ, and it's available in a couple of Denon models at least, uh, and I'm sure will come in others as time goes by. The, it, it's interesting that the two places we can put that are in the higher-end receivers where a microphone will be used to calibrate the sound pressure level, and you're sure of that, so everything can be under control. And it can also be done in the lowest end uh, equipment because there you've got everything under control. You know, there's no, uh, we know the sound pressure, pressure level coming out of it. We know uh, the program material going in and so forth. It's the sort of middle ground that's uncalibrated there. You can't do it. And you can't do it yet on the sound equalizer because it doesn't know anything about sound pressure level. One of the, the biggest feedbacks that we saw on the forum um, and certainly working professionally with the product is that people would like to see uh, customized profiles. Now, we have a, a, a standard answer that explains why the Odyssey system doesn't need multiple profiles, but it would be interesting to hear your opinion um, on the benefit or otherwise of having numerous different equalization profiles stored in the device. Uh, well, it is something we've certainly uh, studied, um, and it's, it is an ongoing uh, question. The problem is, uh, what tools do you give to people to have them be able to select a particular profile? We know there are influences by speaker directivity, for instance, but just how to 
uh, to measure them and tailor them and give any information to the installer who may or may not be trained on any particular kind of program material. Uh, you know, we, we had film sound run along for many years in the open beginnings of home theater with uh, no compensation for the difference between the X-curve and flat listening at home. And uh, it was easy when I take a mixing engineer into a home theater style environment, it was easy for them to tell me what was wrong with it because they knew the program material so well. That's what we don't, that's the loop we don't have closed in uh, the home business today. We don't know, you know, how to train people on program material to be able to intelligently select the one best curve. So we've provided our best estimates of uh, what covers the range of systems out there now. Um, as far as uh, complete customization, well, um, uh, you know, I uh, just, yep. how, how many knobs do you give people to go how far wrong, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. The, the, yeah. the customization thing is something that I've seen. Uh, so I actually work with custom installers and train them um, in, in various aspects of acoustics and stuff like that. And there have been questions and some suggestions as well that there may at some stage be an interface uh, that allows a little bit more customization than there is at, at this present time. Well, we have those uh, tools in-house, of course, because we do listen to various things. And it's not impossible. It's just coming up with a method of uh, knowing that in the end it's going to sound good. You know, and that yep. means uh, how, what the training of the people is going to be. We, we for instance, have about, oh, maybe 10 items of uh, program material that we kind of always run because we know that those 10 items show up particular things, and we are so used to them. One or two of those items are things that I've been using since Advent from the, believe it or not, the 1970s recordings. But I can play you uh, vocal recordings over a full range uh, from, uh, from classical to pop that show that uh, there really is no one uh, preferred uh, curve. And you're, you wind up with thinking, gee, everybody needs a knob on everything if you kind of open it up to all recording. An advantage is sticking just with film because there we know uh, more or less the conditions of playback. You know, there are de facto standards on uh, directivities, for instance. Uh, there is an obvious standard on level and on equalization. But even more important, uh, perhaps, are the de facto standards of directivity, reverb time, and so forth, under which those items are mixed. That leads to the curves that we've provided uh, so that uh, at least for movie program material, if you interchange five movies, you don't find one sounding much, say, honkier than another one on dialogue. Uh, however, if I do interchange five vocal recordings ranging from uh, strict classical to strict pop, I'll get very different results. And I, you know, I, I've thought, how can we possibly solve this? Do we uh, put metadata on the software? Do I sit down here and listen to uh, the world's collection of music, <laughs> you know, and come up with the best tailored response? And some of the worst are actually the old remastered things. You know, one of the reasons that people observe that LPs sound better than CDs has nothing to do with the technologies. 
What it has to do with are the skills of the mastering engineer at the time the LP was made. You know, in the LP era, everything filtered through just a few guys that were very thoroughly trained, and uh, they were kind of scrunching things to get the sound to fit onto an LP. That was a large part of the job. But another part of the job was sort of regulating the industry and keeping the product standardized. And there were all in the United States, there were maybe 10 of these guys that did all pretty much all the high-end LP mastering. Now, with the, in the CD era, that goes away. And instead of getting a kind of hourglass shape that's going through a chokehold where quality can be assured, now we get a rainstorm with everything falling all over the place. And uh, you really can't say uh, what's happening. And I have myself uh, CDs that sound significantly worse than the equivalent, than the original LPs. It has nothing to do with the CD technology or the LP technology. It has to do with the fact that the mastering engineers forgot what they were doing. We always hear this phrase, as the director intended. Um, And obviously we're moving into the digital age. And lots of products come along with, as the director intended, watch as a director intended. And in the display side of things, you can get the displays quite accurate. There are um, standards laid down to get the display to a certain level. Uh, With sound, it doesn't seem to be as focused. And do you think we'll ever get to a stage where someone in their home theatre is actually listening to the same thing that the dubbing mixer hears when they're putting the movie together? Uh, First of all, I think you're absolutely right. As I go to Cedia over the years and so forth, I see the pictures getting better and better and more and more standardized and uh, closer and closer to the originals. And I see huge companies like Panasonic showing us a professional studio monitor. I mean, their display at CES last year had in a black room the monitor style calibrated that is used to make the picture, and right next to it is their big plasma screen, and they look really close. And that's fantastic that they have gotten that idea, because that's really a change from the way television worked for very many years. You know, as soon as we went off the gold standard of uh, the P1 phosphor in 1953, because it was too dim, uh, they went to the rare earth phosphors, then the colors were sort of all over the map and up for grabs. And you'd go into a a store, and the colors would be all over the map, and you'd pick one set that looked good on that piece of program material. That has largely calmed down. And I think, it, you know, I go into a Best Buy today, and they have digital signal distribution. They have good sources. I was astonished to do that last Christmas. Uh, That's just much better than 10 years ago. Sound is more elusive and more difficult. You can't show 20 sound systems in one room. People don't respond the same way to sound, and I teach this in my courses. You know, sound for filmmakers is a way, Walter Murch says, it's in the back door. It sneaks up on you. It can evolve you emotionally without you really knowing it, uh, whereas everybody can tell apart a table and a chair. Almost nobody can tell apart a Foley and an ambience track. Well, this all means that the sound is uh, somewhat behind uh, picture, I think. On the other hand, you know, I get uh, my my work at the university is largely, or a good part of it, is about making small rooms, uh, like 20 by 25 feet or less, actually less than that, 18 by 23 feet, match a huge uh, 750,000 cubic foot cinema, hundreds of seats and so forth, and how we get the, the level 
to be the same and how we get the equalization standards to be the same so that you can make professionally useful judgments in the small dub stage and have it applied to the large cinema. Well, of course, it goes the other way, too. I'm able to take the large cinema response and play it back from DVDs in a small room. One of my best moments the last couple of years was with a colleague with whom I teach who edits many, many music scores for movies. The, uh, Air Force One was one of them, and he he's a music editor. And uh, he played Air Force One in this small room that I've done, and it's a Denon receiver and Klipsch loudspeakers and uh, the right uh, tuning for it and so forth. It's uh, a bunch of uh, little tiny, uh, a whole pile of little tiny surround speakers and uh, horn-style front speakers for their level capacity and so forth. And uh, my gosh, you know, he was just astonished that we were able to do that in a small room and say, well, that sounds just like the dub did. You know, so that has been a great deal of my work. And so I think it can be done. The question is, how much is it done? Well, not as much as it should be. There are some interesting moves afoot in the custom install industry at the moment to actually come up with some standards uh, for uh, room acoustics, so reverberation times, etc., that installers and designers can now follow and have real standards to follow um, when they're designing home theatres. And I think that that is something that people have struggled with. You know, how do you define uh, what your targets are when designing a room? Um, and to yeah. have these standards available for people to work to uh, will well, be a big improvement, I think. Right. Often I feel it's the wrong crowd to be lecturing to, to be talking to Cedia, because I really should be talking uh, to the interior decorators. Because, <laughs> it, because it is the decorators who cause all the problems. You know, I turned down a job with a very, very well-known, highly known music industry person who wanted a, a listening room to do home theater and have a pool table and have a glass wall that worked out on the patio and have parties in the room. And by the way, this was his office. <laughs> and I said, well, good luck. <laughs> and I said it to somebody else because, you know, it just, oh, gosh, that was just sort of one too many. <laughs> one took one took over the line, sweet Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Tom, where do you see Odyssey going then in the next five years? How do you see things developing just around off today? Well, I think what we're up to here is better matching uh equipment, rooms and technology to human beings. You know, it's all about adapting uh, we know that the program material, at least in the film industry, is made under pretty standardized conditions. So we can continue uh, what I started with THX to get closer and closer to reproducing that, and at the various, you know, in the various conditions that people need to reproduce it in the home. Uh, at lower levels, for instance, this dynamic EQ uh, is just, you know, uh, frankly, I cried. I can turn this thing on get it all correct, turn it down 25 dB where people have to listen to it at night, and you get the full spectrum. You know, it's not thin and screechy sounding anymore. Uh, so that's the application of psychoacoustics and, uh, you know, pre-existing scientific knowledge and some new knowledge and uh, built up over time for how to get the best reproduction under all possible conditions. And finally, Tom, this is a question I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, since I started reading up on, on what you've done in the industry. Are you a film fan? And what kind of home theatre do you have at home? Uh, well, 
Oh, I'm a total film fan. I go to the best cinema here in town uh, weekly. I just saw a double feature this past weekend uh, and, uh, and many DVDs and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I've seen, I think, uh, about 92, I believe, of the AFI Top 100 of All Time movies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, I'm a total film fan. Uh, all I do is I work and I uh, read and I go to movies, <laughs> as anybody <laughs> who knows me will tell you. And in terms of a home theater, uh, well, right now I'm trying to build about uh, 120 miles east of Los Angeles. We bought some uh, land up in the uh, high Mojave Desert uh, near Joshua Tree National Park with uh, wonderful views and pretty inexpensive land. And what I'm uh, building there is a screening room, but this is not, I don't think, in the home theater category because this, uh, this means to be a 10-meter wide screen with uh, film projection 35 and 70. I already have that. Uh, building out there in the desert has proved to be very difficult because of, uh, well, first we had a housing boom and, and nobody would talk to us, and now we have a housing bust and everybody's gone bankrupt. So <laughs> it's been a while. But that's my goal is to build that quote-unquote home theater uh, meanwhile, you know, I have a uh, receiver, uh, uh, new, brand new uh, Denon receiver because of the dynamic EQ and uh, also live in a loft here downtown Los Angeles. So that has a uh, uh, receiver and uh, smell speakers and so forth. And, of course, the main thing I do, really, I have, I have a lot of rooms I look after at school and in uh, post-production in Hollywood. Uh, one I'm very proud of is at uh, PostLogic. And that uses our three-way system, the Tesseract that I developed that's in a uh, number of uh, professional spaces. It's a, uh, uh, as I said, it's a three-way behind-the-screen style tri-amplified system for rooms that are a little larger than home listening rooms, but not enormous dub stages. And uh, that room uh, is probably the best-sounding one I've done. Tom, it's been fascinating speaking to you and thank you very much for spending an hour of your time with us on the AV Podcast. And may I wish you a, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much, guys. Made by enthusiasts. For enthusiasts. Wow, a free movie, thanks. This is the AV Podcast. And that's all we've got time for for this month's podcast. Our thanks again to Tomlinson Homan and Neil Davidson for this month's chat. And don't forget, we'll be back again in the new year for our roundup of 2007. Until then, if you have any questions, queries or comments, then send us an email to podcast at avforums.com. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again in the new year. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.